Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I'm really excited for today's episode because I had such a wonderful conversation with author Bethany Saltman, who wrote this gorgeous book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. And it is truly both a personal mom memoir, but with a journey that you will recognize and watch unfold as you get to know yourself. And it covers the science of attachment, which is the science of knowing yourself and understanding and making sense of you and your world. And it is the science that helps us understand that who we are and who we were in the past and the experience that we had being parented is, of course, something we have to come to terms with and really unpack in order to be the parents that we want to be. In order to understand this episode and get the most out of it, I just want to define a few things that I think will just clarify our conversation. And then, of course, all will come to light when you read the book. But attachment science is really uh, foundational to child development. And as a sort of red flag, a lot of popular parenting movements or, you know, gosh, there's so much uh, popular culture parenting stuff out there that uses the word attachment, but none of that is attachment science. It's just feels heavy and seems to be kind of, I think, in an underhanded way, a scooch underhanded in that there's an implication that it's related to attachment science. Like, for example, attachment parenting, which is not related to the science of attachment. However, it is absolutely implied. And I think a lot of parents believe that that is somehow the path to having a securely attached relationship with your child. This is not so. Today, we're talking about the actual developmental science So I want to define a few things. One of them is just simply to define secure attachment in case it's something that you haven't heard before. And essentially a child is considered securely attached when that child views their caregiver as a safe, reliable, nurturing, caring connection and with whom the child feels a sense of belonging. And so we are going to get into the theory and how it evolved, 
because that's a huge part of this book and a huge part of where attachment science is today. And so we're going to talk about Mary Ainsworth, the woman responsible for how we look at attachment um, and, and how that science has grown. Another concept that I just want to briefly define before we start this is what we mean when we say sensitive caregiving, which is really much more simple than it sounds because it is just responding appropriately and in a time-sensitive manner to your baby's bids for attention, for food, for security, any of those things, so that you become a secure, safe space from which they can go off and explore. So it's just about being aware and attuned to your infant and eventually your adolescent. Just an awareness and attunement. You're reading them. You're reading them in an appropriate and timely way. And the reason I use the word appropriate, it's very intentional, is that if it doesn't make sense to you or to your child, or if it's, for example, age inappropriate, like you have a two week old and you're responding to them as if they're a one year old, or you have a teenager and you're responding as if they're five, that wouldn't be appropriate, even if it's sensitive. So that the sensitivity really includes this kind of gauging, and we all get better and better at it over time this gauging of what your child needs and is that need something you can meet? And if it's not something you can meet, why is that? Is it because it's not appropriate or because you don't feel like it or because, you know, of any number of things. But ideally, when your infant or child has a need that you can meet appropriately and in a timely way, you do so. and. As such, you become attuned with them. And if this doesn't sound simple, we'll get into it a little bit towards the end of this episode, but I needed to address it at the beginning because we refer to it without explanation. All right, now let's just have this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. This is all of our journeys. And if you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. I love them. They're helpful. They feel good. And um, please also DM me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast with questions and thoughts. And I look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get into this conversation. Buffy makes bedding that is earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Buffy spent sleepless nights worrying about the impact the bedding industry has on the environment, so they decided to change it. The products are made using sustainable and recycled materials, which makes them as soft on the planet as they are on your bed. And the latest product, The Breeze, is a comforter made entirely from 100% eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep you cool and comfortable all night long. That means no more night sweats. You can get cozy without overheating. 
and the 100% plant-based design is breathable and keeps you at a comfortable temperature in a way that polyester and down-filled comforters just cannot. And it's softer than cotton and naturally soothes skin. And again, it's earth-friendly, it's hypoallergenic, and it's high thread count. So that shuts out dust, mold, and mites for a healthier sleep environment. Why not choose 100% plant-based bedding that's better for you and the earth? You can try a comforter in your own bed for free. And if you don't love it, return it at no cost. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, just visit buffybuffy.co and enter the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S. $20 off your Buffy comforter by visiting Buffy.co and just entering the code HUMANS. I kind of want to take the listeners on a mini journey of your book because there's so much rich content in there. You can't, nobody's skipping the book because they had this conversation, but I do think it would be helpful for everyone to hear what that moment was when you realized you need to set out on this journey. Absolutely. You know, I really flash back to looking at pictures of Mary Ainsworth online and um, her face, her grandmotherly, but kind of warm. And um, I could just feel her funkiness from um, inside those pictures of her in her 1960s look. And I was a young mother who was so confused. You know, I, I loved my daughter Azalea so much. Um, and, and so I didn't, I knew that there wasn't a quote problem with quote bonding, you know, right. I had affection for her. Um, thank goodness. Cause I know a lot of mothers struggle with that as well, but I was still myself and I had been under this delusion and I didn't even know that this was something I thought. But I really believed that when I became a mother, I would become, I would get sort of doused with this maternal sensitivity and I would become a new person. And nothing could have been further from the truth because not only was I still myself, I was extra me because I was under so much pressure. Mm. I had all these ideas about what I was supposed to be like. I was sleep deprived. I was um, lonely. I was you know, I like to say understimulated. And then I was beating the crap out of myself because I thought I was supposed to feel differently. So I was a writer and I was writing a column on being a Buddhist mother because I am a Buddhist. And um, so I had this opportunity to do a lot of sort of scrambling and researching and thinking about these things once a month. And I had been introduced to William Sears when Azalea was born. And I felt like, no, that's, that's not going to do it for me. Um, I knew better, thank goodness, than to think that a checklist of behaviors was going to help me raise a human being. And um, to, not to, I, I don't want to interrupt this, no, except please, to please. let everybody know who William Sears is in case they don't know. And, and we'll get to who Mary Ainsworth is. But for those who don't know who William Sears is, Dr. Sears, Dr. William Sears wrote a bunch of baby books on, he's like the father of attachment parenting, which is, I think we can both acknowledge an appropriation, if I can use that word, which I don't know if I can, but of sure, yes, you can. developmental science and really has given a lot of people, millions and millions of people, the impression 
of having this secure relationship between parent or caregiver and child is somehow dependent on these, this checklist of his particular style of parenting. Yes, exactly. Which is not that, but that's the baby wearing and the co-sleeping and and the breastfeeding and you can do those things. Absolutely. Everything is on demand and it's very right for some parents and extremely wrong for others. (laughs) But importantly, there's a tone about it that has claimed in pop culture to be particularly salient for creating this, cultivating a secure attachment, which is absurd. It's completely absurd. Please go on. (laughs) Well, I I want to also say that um, because a lot of people still rely on him to to be this arbiter of so-called attachment, um, he really did hijack the term. What he's talking about has absolutely nothing to do with the developmental science of attachment. Um, But his background Mm -hmm. is as a conservative Christian. And the book that came out before his big book was called Raising the Christian Baby or something to that effect. Yes. I thought it was actually... Oh, it's right here. It's called Christian A Catholic... It's was it Christian, Christian? Parenting and Child Care. I have it sitting right next to me. You know, I've never mentioned that to anybody. I've never had this conversation, this particular part of it, because I was like scared to mention it to anyone because I thought, why scared. hasn't anybody said anything? But it blows my mind that when I first started reading, because of course I do like to make sure that I've read everything to the best of my ability so that I can sure. have some sense of what is out there. But I remember reading it, his book. I was like, what, what am I reading here? And then I wanted to look more <laughs> yeah. into what he was doing. And I saw that the first book was about being like a good Christian, yeah, really a good Christian or something. Yeah. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, this is not, not appropriate for science. I mean, let that be out there. That's totally fine. Absolutely. Go for it. If that's but I'm, thing. I'm pretty certain that if you asked anybody listening who's used that approach, they have no idea. Exactly. That that's where he was coming from. So that was very strange. But anyway, glad we got that one out. Yeah. Well, and it's actually a very conservative agenda. Yeah. About keeping women in a very particular position and believing that we have some special knowledge. And we don't. And that was one of the greatest shames of my life because I felt like, what is wrong with me? How can I be angry at this baby that I love? You know, it was so painful Mm -hmm. and and really sent me reeling. And, you know, now I can be grateful for that because it sent me into this science of attachment. So, you know, I had, I had dismissed Dr. Sears and, and was doing a lot of research into, you know, for, for my column every month. And stumbled upon this other thing about attachment, which I soon recognized was different from Dr. Sears. Mm. And specifically this thing called the strange situation, which was mm-hmm. developed by Mary Ainsworth. And first of all, just the words strange situation resonated. Mm-hmm. As I was in a strange situation. And of course, we are in a super strange right. situation these days. And so I loved the name of it. And then I looked at these pictures of her, like I said, and I just thought, ooh, like she kind of reminds me of my grandmother, but I really, you know, I'm interested in her face. I feel like she's got something going on that I'm, I'm really curious about. And then I started to, you know, noodle around and, and, uh, and think about and learn about the strange situation, the 20-minute laboratory procedure that she came up with to um, observe and classify the attachment pattern that occurs between a mother 
a, a caregiver and their baby by the age of one year. And so when I learned about that, my MFA is in poetry. And um, so I'm, I'm a poet and, you know, not because that I makes sense in it. Yeah. But because that's my, that's yeah. who I am. And so that's why I studied that. When I found out that you could learn something so profound about our relationships in a 20 minute procedure filled with comings and goings, I thought that is, um, that's like a poem. I need to know about that. How can mm-hmm. something so important and so complex be compressed into these 20 minutes? And so that's when I went on my 10-year journey into the science of attachment. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing, um, but I just knew I needed to know more. Today's episode is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. Go to oseamalibu.com slash raisinggoodhumans for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. And there's free shipping for US orders over $75, plus free samples with every order. Osea stands for the elements of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pulls from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base. This potent base allows for the products to easily absorb into the skin and effectively bring about balance while targeting signs of aging and skin imperfections. Not that your skin has to be perfect. Founded and run by a family of women inspired by the sea, Osea formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. Every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. There are even personal skin consultations, customized facials, and expert estheticians. For your first purchase, $10 off, go to oseamalibu.com slash raisinggoodhumans. And of course, and we'll get to it maybe, or um, mm-hmm. at some point, this could be like a three-part conversation. But um, again, I, and I, I just do this to make sure that people listening aren't lost in any way. But of course, the, it's a lot. The summary of the strange situation, which we can do a quick summary of the strange situation. But I also want to say that we know that this still is a moment in time and it is giving information about that moment in time that relationships are dynamic, all the caveats in the world. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. But this is, this was the mother of this whole entire developmental science. And so this small, but enormous lab experiment basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is basically it's boiled down to, do you want to go through, is that too much to do in, in a quick moment? What happens in the lab? Yeah. I'm just wondering if it's, I think it's worth going through the experience of what happens when a caregiver comes to the lab, drops their kid off, and we're looking at a few different interactions in terms of hellos and goodbyes. Yeah. Do that maybe? Sure, sure. There are nine episodes, but I'll boil it down to, I'll make it simpler. Yeah. The the premise of this is that um, what Mary Ainsworth discovered first in Uganda, that was her first research subject group, 26 mothers and babies in Uganda. What she was beginning to 
see was that what she thought were the most, quote, secure babies, and this was brand new. She was just kind of figuring this thing out. They were expert at using their mothers as what she called a secure base. So in times of stress, for instance, meeting the first white person of their lives, Mary mm-hmm. Ainsworth, mm-hmm. they, you know, she started to notice the way that they moved back and forth um, between moving out into, you know, fearful territory, this white lady with, you know, candy and, you know, um, she was very warm and inviting, um, but they were nervous. And so they'd go back to their mothers. And so she started to see that the more secure babies were just really good at going back to their mothers and their mothers would give them, you know, the hug or the kiss or the sweet little face or whatever they needed. And then the kids could go back out to explore either her or just their environment, you know, whatever it was. And so when she went to um, Baltimore after her time in Uganda and she wanted to replicate the study with a sample, you know, the most different samples she could come up with, So she um, got in touch with a pediatrician and she found a sample of 26 middle-class white people from Baltimore, from a Baltimore suburb. And she did the same, she did the same um, observing, much more intense and much more, you know, scientific. And she discovered that what she saw in the home was that the white kids weren't using their mothers as a secure base in the same way that she could see. And so she thought, well, it could be because they're not as afraid of me. I mean, this woman, like what a genius. Um, Because, you know, they may not be as afraid of me or my, you know, the people who are observing, or they're more used to being left with babysitters. These are American kids. They have a very Mm. different kind of social experience. So let me bring them into the lab and goose their attachment systems, that thing that belongs to all of us that keeps us close to caregivers in times of stress and see how they behave. And so that's what she did. She came up with the strange situation in, in half an hour. And, and so it's this series of comings and goings. So the caregiver and the baby enter a room with some toys and chairs. Um, they're observed for temperament. What kind of a person, what kind of a baby is this? What is the relationship like between the baby and the caregiver? And then a stranger is introduced. And so we see how does this baby relate to a stranger And what we're looking for is what's called a differential relationship. We want the baby to rely on the mother, the caregiver, for that security and not be as comfortable with the stranger by a year. That's just sort of, you know, developmentally so. Now, there's a lot of variation for your listeners. Please note, you know, this is not anything that is, you know, really etched in stone. These are tendencies. Exactly. And we want to just give a framework here because that way you can begin to unpack this really beautiful concept and think about your own experiences and all those exactly. things. So that's where this, this beginning experience is important to understand. Exactly. So, so the stranger comes in and then the mother leaves and the child is left with the stranger and we see how does the baby react when left alone. But what we're really looking for is what happens when the mother returns. Is the baby able to use the mother to return to their level of homeostasis. However they were in the beginning of the, of the strange situation, can they use their mother to get back to that? Now, some kids are going to be really, really upset when their mother leaves. Other kids aren't. That's totally fine. Like every child is going to be different. What we're looking for is that pattern. Can they use their mother to return to their level of stability so that they can get back to exploring the toys on the floor. You know, lots of research has shown that that baby, regardless of what they look like, 
when they're left alone, they're under stress. Some babies cry about it. Others get inward. Some are quiet. But, you know, there's, but there have been a lot of studies that show that their heart rates go up, their cortisol spikes, they are under stress. And so we want to see how do they use the mother when the mother returns. But one thing to think about for parents of, of babies, at least, yeah, and, and even toddlers, that sense that parents get that something is terribly wrong if they have a kid who either does or does not cry when you separate, right. nobody's really looking at that. It's, no. It is really about the return. And that's been one misunderstanding always. Absolutely. And the other thing that's important in this particular description is it's about the child coming back to where they started, not becoming yes. a totally different kid. Thank so you. temperament yes. is a part of this. Always. And and of course, temperament is a part of the attachment relationship anyway. Absolutely. And we'll get into temperament maybe, maybe we'll have time, but I just wanted to mention those two things because when people talk about their children being too attached or you know having no attachment because of that moment of separation the focus is on something that really has nothing to do with attachment absolutely nothing i'm so glad you said that and furthermore you know i watched the strange situation online you know, hundreds of times i went to a training to learn how to code it myself as a professional And it took me maybe midway through that training in Minneapolis to really begin to see it and to understand what was going on. So I beg of parents not to try to overlay. Recreate. (laughs) Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not not a parlor game. Don't try to recreate it, although I thought about it a lot. Um, (laughs) But also, like, there's there's a mystery to it. And and I was really interested in this. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your kid does in the strange situation or however you think they are secure or insecurely attached. Mm -hmm. What matters is that we learn to attune to our children by attuning to ourselves. So wherever you are, um, wherever your child is, the message is always going to be the same. And this is not, you know, I am a, a longtime Buddhist, but this is not a new agey, you know, religious, spiritual concept. This is science. Mm -hmm. Where attachment is concerned, our children are us and we are them. We mirror each other. Um, Our attachment systems are combined. So the way that we um, inhabit a kind of attunement for them is by inhabiting attunement to ourselves. The first person we talk to every day is ourselves. And the way we talk to ourselves is the way we talk to our children. So word to the wise moms. Shopping for kids' clothes just got 10 times better. Thanks to Rockets of Awesome, a magical box of kids' clothes delivered straight to your door each season. The brand designs the coolest kids' clothes with special details and super soft fabrics that kids want to wear every day, plus quality parents can depend on. Kids can't wait to see what's inside their personalized boxes, and parents know that they're getting incredible value for high-quality clothes, all from the comfort of home. A few reasons why Rackets of Awesome is awesome. First of all, great savings and value because it's just consistently delivering stylish, high-quality clothing at an accessible price point. For growing children, that's kind of a big deal. And it pays to stock up because the larger the box, the bigger the savings. You can save up to 45%. 
And kids get so excited about the one-of-a-kind styles and unique features and their clothes are kid-tested for comfort. So they're itch-free, scratch-free. They don't even have tags most of the time. And everything's mix and match, machine washable, and made with super soft fabrics that are built for all-day play. And you have complete control over what comes to your child's box. So you can choose how many items you want, five, eight, or 12, and swap out items before the box ships. There's no commitment. You can cancel or skip the box anytime. It's legitimately ideal for busy parents. It's a no-risk guarantee, and you pay a $20 styling fee up front, and then they credit it toward anything you keep. And then once the box arrives, you keep and you pay for what you love, and you send back the rest for free. And if nothing works, it's fine too. They will refund your styling fee. It's so, so easy. So to get started, you take a short quiz about your child's style preferences, which is just fun to engage them in the process of choosing their clothes. And then you choose the size box you want, five, eight, or 12 items, and they take care of the rest. The unboxing experience is endlessly magical and it's like a celebration every time. And your kids can even color the inside of the box like it's a coloring book. And they're just awesome illustrations and they just make it happy and fun. Rockets of Awesome makes shopping for kids easy, convenient, and actually a blast for the whole family. Take their quiz, sign up today risk-free at rocketsofawesome.com slash humans. Use the promo code H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off your first box. That's rocketsofawesome.com slash humans and use the promo code humans. We are yeah. so hard on ourselves. We are so hard on ourselves. I always think about that. Is this voice inside my head, the voice I want my kids to hear when yeah. they're talking to themselves because we all talk to ourselves. And because of what you're saying, because of that kind of co-regulation and connection that we are kind of one in that sense and in separate. That sense. And separate. That even if we cannot hear the way we talk to ourselves, I mean, even if nobody around us can hear it, that is part of what is getting into our systems. Absolutely. And, you know, the adult attachment research shows that 70%, 75% of us are transferring our adult attachment onto our children. Now, this is not attachment styles work which is totally different. This is not about taking a quiz online and trying to figure out what kind of attachment you are or what kind of attachment style you have. This is much different, um, much more rigorous science. And so I really caution people, again, against trying to self-diagnose and instead try to understand that the deepest part of you is something that really deserves attention and affection. And that deep part of ourselves is what our children need. And they need us to be loving enough so that we can love that deep part of them. I just want everybody to take that in. Part of our parenting journey is getting to know this part of ourselves. Exactly. And and this book really supports that journey because you went on that journey. And so you explored your own experience of being parented, which if you don't explore that, you can't come to the place of, I think where you, where you get to parent your child in the intentional way right? that we're all hoping for on a good day. Yeah. 
And, and it's never going to be perfect. You know, one mm-hmm. of my favorite statistics from the book is that 50% attunement is as good as it ever gets. And that's, that's like right. a, a brilliant, you know, maternal Madonna, which I am not. A big part of the reason, well, the main reason I went on this journey is because I couldn't live with myself. You know, I had to know what kind of mother I was. I had to know if I was hurting my child. I loved her so much. I had to get to the bottom of what this love thing is about. And it just compelled me. And did you know, did you have some part of you that was aware that that in and of itself put you into a good enough mother? No, I did not. Not at all. Nope. Um, I'm glad you brought that up though, because now I know that, of course. You do? Yes, yes, I do. And I say that to people all the time who come to me with these questions and concerns. But you know, when you're in it, you're in it. And, and I was nasty sometimes. You know, like it wasn't just, you know, Dan Siegel always uses very kind of benign examples in his books. Yes, he does. He does. And I love him, but I resent him for it because, you know, I was not benign. I would be shaking with rage and the, the hormone, there were some scenes in the book that got cut out because my editor was just like, nobody is going to be able to read this Mm. and still like you. (laughs) Do you know how many mothers probably feel that way? I know. I know. It's just, we all have those moments. She sort of gave us this way to measure attachment science that has then, you know, become this enormous field. And in doing the strange situation helped us understand that these snapshots of interactions can help you understand this relationship and what's going on. Right. And then I think it's important for people to understand the broad categories, even though they shift, they change. Yes. yes. Relationships are dynamic. This is not set in stone at one year. But just, just to give a sense of the shape of what the different attachment patterns. Thank you. I was yeah. avoiding styles. Yeah. Um, what the <laughs> different attachment <laughs> patterns were. Yeah. about so that people can start to just think through what all of this means. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, um, the attachment patterns that Mary started to see in Uganda and then confirmed in Baltimore still are understood as the way human beings are. Um, so there is the securely attached baby at one Um, And then there are insecure babies and insecure babies are divided into two categories. One is the avoidant baby and the other is the resistant baby. So the secure baby and that's, and and the secure baby is about 65% of most babies are secure around the world. This is true. Now, again, back to Dr. Sears, if we think about that, you know, think about all the variation of human interaction around the world and that 65% of us raise secure babies. So mm-hmm. right off the bat, we know that Dr. Sears is wrong. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters how you feel. This is, mm-hmm. this is Mary Ainsworth's big newsflash. So the, the secure babies were in the strange situation. They, sometimes they have big, big reactions, big cries, sometimes not so much. But when the mother returns upon reunion, they, for the most part, what's called, they seek proximity 
they, what I say, they know how to get their bread buttered. Mm. They're like, you know, they, they do the uppies, they mold, they, but it might not even be for long. And it's, sometimes it's so quick. It's hard to even notice. That's why I, I mentioned, you know, I took me a lot of training to begin to see this. You may not see it. And then they get back to playing because the primary source, primary function of the attachment system is to create a feeling of safety so that human beings can go about their business, which is exploring, creating, learning, growing, you know, relating. Now the secure, the insecure avoidant baby is the least common. And these babies, um, when they are upset, um, when they're left alone, when they're parent, when their caregiver returns, they actually don't return. They don't go to the parent. And this is a terrible thing to watch. You know, I've seen many um, videos of this. It is so sad. And in the United States, we sometimes confuse avoidance for what we like to call independence. We love independent babies. And by the time a baby is one, we really don't want them to be too independent. We want them to need us and to be able to get what they need from us. So the avoidant baby is um, actually repressing their feelings. This is a tragic situation that can be healed over a lifetime for sure and, uh, and is all the time. And the way that we heal this is by attuning to ourselves, gearing ourselves, you know, orienting toward relationship and getting out of the habit of believing that nobody's going to be there for us when we need them. So by the time we're one, we can be imprinted with these basic orientations. The resistant baby is exactly what it sounds like. They go toward the parent during reunion, but they ask for an upbeat and then they want down or they go up and they get a little violent. They like, you know, hit the mom or they are just agitated. They can't settle. They're resisting the secure base um, soothing. And that is because they have been receiving inconsistent care throughout their lifetime. So again, none of this is to say that, and Mary Ainsworth was so amazing in the way she talked about these mothers because she spent a huge amount of time with them, hours and hours and hours. And she always was very interested in context. And, and in her notes about these parents, she always talked about why the mother was perhaps not very attentive, why the mother had trouble being sensitive. She talked about what was going on in the mother's life. She talked about the mother's marital relationships. She talked about um, just how she felt in the world about herself as a woman. And so this isn't to say that this is a bad mother and a bad child. It's a way of understanding what human beings need, which is to feel secure in a relationship. If you're interested enough to be concerned that your child is insecure, then we can do the important work to try to become more attuned. And again, mm -hmm. that work always comes back to how we feel like on, on a sensory level in our own lives, in our own bodies, how we feel about ourselves and the world, because we can't give our children that affectionate, you know, secure base experience what Mary Ainsworth called delight. We can't delight in our babies if we don't know delight. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in graduate school, I went to, you know, do an observation at a daycare program and the little two-year-old ran up to me and gave me a huge hug. And my 
mentor was standing next to me and it was really early in my graduate school career. And I was so like touched. I didn't have kids. And I just was so excited that a little kid was coming up to me. I thought I must have like a way with kids. And she said to me afterwards, it's not appropriate right, for the most part that that little toddler ran over to you and gave you a hug the minute you walked in the room. Right. And so that's something you would normally want to actually explore. Right. Versus think, oh, that's so cute. Right. They must love me. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's about me. Right. But, um, that was my first real life. And by the way, I had started to study all of this, but nothing makes sense until you look at human beings. Like you can read all about this. Yeah. None of this makes sense. Then all of a sudden you have a baby, you're with a baby, you're thinking about how you were parented. All of those things help you make sense of, well, what does that mean that in those early months and years, when you had a reunion after a separation that you felt, you know, a little interest in proximity and then wanted to go explore. Like right. what does that do for your adult self? What exactly. did the experiences tell you? And the opposite, you know, when you're talking about the insecure attachment, um, what does that do? And then I think a more intense exploration also helps you ask the question, what is home to me as an adult? Like what yes. feeling my body oh, is home yes. to me? You know, oh, is I love it that. seeking proximity to a safe person who I know is going to be there even when we're not, you know, even when we are apart. And if that isn't what was home to you back deep in your subconscious and your unconscious memory and that early experience, it can be hard not to find a warm coziness in someone who's rejecting you or someone who's giving you mixed messages. And so this stuff that happens in our early years has long-term implications. Absolutely. For every part of our lives. Even though- Not not just our relationships. Not not just our relationships. And let's talk more about that. And I want to hear all of this from you. And also, I just want to keep repeating that nothing is finished. Nothing is- Ever. Ever, ever, ever. So- Ever, ever, ever. This is both important work to get out there and interesting and, and profound and beautiful. And also always, always with the possibility of attuning and reconnecting. You could have an adolescent right now and think, oh my God, I think I just figured something out. And I don't know that we have this connection. And I don't know that I've offered that. And you can repair. So absolutely. I just I just want to keep on saying that over and over. But now I'm really glad you're doing that because this can be weaponized and I don't want it to be. And it has been weaponized against women. Right. Right. This is very much, and you know, it's, I'm, I'm loath to say it, but I'm gonna, this is very much about women and mothers. And um, very much despite the fact that attachment science is relevant for all caregivers and really the primary. So whoever your primary is, whether that's a father, a mother, a grandmother, some, you know, kin care, and it, it doesn't matter. However, let us not pretend that it's not for the most part about mothers and it's about right. the mothers who sit and, and criticize themselves and yep. themselves. And then do it to other mothers. 
and then are so cruel to other mothers or yes. sit in such judgment. You yeah. can't even announce that you had a baby without people <laughs> letting you know all the things that you've done wrong in the announcement. So yeah. there's, it's, there's it's a lot of viciousness. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And, you know, regarding th- hearing this and thinking about your own relationships, um, you know, I have a 14 year old who's in the house as we speak and, you know, doing Zoom school. And um, one way to think about it is like in the strange situation, we're not so concerned with what the child does under duress. We're concerned about what happens, how they reach out to you in repair. So, you know, when you're looking at your adolescent or your toddler or, you know, whatever, we get so wrapped up and like, oh, my kid, you know, had a hard time at school, had a hard time with their friends, you know, their so-called problems. But what we are, what's more interesting from an attachment point of view isn't whether or not they have problems, but how they manage those problems. Do they come to you? Do they um, think of you as a trusted source? And as they get older, do they do that for themselves? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like becoming our own secure base is the work of adulthood. And we can do that in so many ways. We can do that through spiritual practice. We can do that through therapy. We can do that because we're like Dan Siegel, like, you know, one of the foot soldiers for the secure. We were just raised that way. <laughs> Most of us need to do some work on that, you know? And when I started my book, my journey, my, you know, into the science of attachment, I assumed that I was insecure because I, in fact, I thought I was like a poster child for insecurity because I was a, a juvenile delinquent. I did terribly in school. I was, a, I, as I got older, I became a sex and love addict. I, um, and the memoir is very cherry picked. It's a, you know, it's not meant to be a total tell all. So I really just give a little bit of this so that people can understand why I thought what I thought. But I was a shit show of a kid. And I had a very lonely childhood and then I acted out like crazy. And so when I went into this research, I just assumed that I would be insecure. And then when I started to um, understand that that 75% of us pass our attachment pattern onto our child, I thought, well, obviously Azalea is going to be insecure too. So, oh shit. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and again, to readers, even if that were the case, there, there is lots of help available and, you know, repair is always possible. But when I saw her and I saw how she was in the world and what teachers were saying about her and how she was with her peers and she was so well-regulated, everybody seemed to delight in her. She seemed to delight in the world. There was a little bit of a thorn in the mud, you know? I was like, well, mm. this isn't really adding up. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, she must have gotten her security from her father <laughs> um, or from God or, you know, somewhere. And so when I started to learn about the adult attachment interview and I got my own adult attachment interview done, which is an hour-long back-and-forth interview that then gets transcribed and classified, and I also learned how to do that. I went to that two-week training to learn how to do, and I discovered that I was, in fact, a securely attached adult. And that what that means is that even though I had difficulty, lots of it, I always valued attachment. I always sought to be close to people. I was, you know, determined to feel loved and to be loved. And I, w- I went about it in some pretty wackadoodle ways because I didn't have a lot of tools and I didn't have parents who were sort of leading me well in that way. 
but I had what I needed in order to create a life that felt fulfilling. I, you know, so many mistakes, but my primary goal was, was for love. And that's now how I understand what a secure attachment is. That was a life-changing experience. And that happened in the midst of this process. Exactly. That happened um, in the, at the New School for Social Research when I got the results from my AAI, my adult attachment interview. And um, the episode in my mind that I had always thought was sort of a creepy um, you know, memory of my dad and me in the bathroom that I had always thought was maybe you know, an implication of something darker than I had even remembered. And I like, spent time in therapy exploring this. I really was looking for the source of my, my brokenness. Like, why am I so screwed up? And so the, the story is that I was in the bathtub and he poked his head in and I said, no, get mom. And so when I told that story to the person who did my adult attachment interview and he came back with the results and he, he reflected on that memory and he's, he called that an empowering memory because I was actually able to ask for what I needed. I was able to say no to my father. What a different way to understand that. And that I was strong enough at that age to be able to get my bread buttered. Mm -hmm. And so I looked back on everything and that's what the book is really about. Looking back on my relationship with my mother, looking back on all of my delinquency and with a new fresh light of being secure enough? Uh, first of all, I love secure enough in the same way I love good enough. Yeah. Because there's also this sense that there's this holy grail of secure, having exactly. this secure sense that somehow you're either strong and unbreakable and have this you know, foundation of strength or you're a hot mess. Exactly. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, and we really just need to be secure enough. And yeah. also, what an incredibly important way of understanding the power of how we interpret our narrative, mm-hmm. how we allow others to interpret narratives for us, mm-hmm. and how important it is to allow our children to share their own story with us without imposing our you know, editorial around it, unless they're seeking some extra support or language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was, you know, an incredible, I mean, I'd been creating that narrative forever. Wow. And it was only after studying the science of attachment for as long as I did and really trusting it that I was able to see it. I mean, if he had just said that to me, out of the blue, if I didn't know Dr. Steele and if I didn't know this work and I didn't really trust the science of it, it wouldn't have resonated for me. I wouldn't have believed. You weren't ready. And then in this moment you were. Yeah. I knew enough to know, oh my God, he's got a point. At least he's got a point. But, um, you know, it it makes me feel a lot lighter about the whole Mm -hmm. enterprise. Like if I can get through this and be secure enough, like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of room in this system for chaos. What I do is that I give more room and space for the mishaps. And I feel like there's many, you know, days are going to be vastly different that in fact, when you were talking about like 
I can't remember the language that you use, but talking about how kids who are babies who aren't getting that consistent caregiving. They're bread buttered, yeah. That I also know that that's not what you were saying doesn't translate to every day you have to be a steady and calm, oh God, no. you know, vessel of peace and love and presence and attunement, but that right. every day you find some time to be, you know, you know, we do our best. Of course, I'm not advocating yeah. for people yeah, being yeah. like, you know, wow, you're, they're probably going to be fine. So obviously, right. I think you ask yourself this question, like, does it matter? Does my parenting even matter? Exactly. And the answer is yes. So, you know, a lot of people I find, you know, we, we really are, um, as human beings, we polarize, like that's just what we do. And we like to think either, oh my God, it's all on me. Therefore I have to give up because I suck Mm -hmm. or it doesn't really matter what I do. It's all in the genes. Therefore I can give up. And to me, you know, we have to be held accountable. I want to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And I want someone else, I want, you know, you to hold me accountable. I want my husband to hold me accountable. I want my daughter to hold me accountable. I chose to bring this child into the world. And so, you know, it's not enough to say it doesn't matter. And at the same time, she has her own karma. She has her own path. And she has her own temperament. And the two of us are going to meet in whatever way we do. And every day I have an opportunity to try to meet her, to try to meet her and to try to meet myself and to try to make that relationship as attuned as possible. But I mean, failure is the name of the game. Right. Right. It's the one guarantee. Absolutely. That we have yeah. is that we're going to blow it. And then we get to get right back up. And exactly. for children, we will. Exactly. Exactly. It's like what we learn in in meditation. You know, it's not that you're going to stop thinking. You're going to learn to see the thought, let it go and gently return to your practice. You know, we tend to be very polarized and, you know, it's this way or that way. And I know that I get in trouble a lot for not having passionately strong opinions on either side of certain parenting ideas because there's simply not that simple. And in fact, I've had a couple (laughs) of, you know, I've had a couple of experiences where, you know, somebody connects me with a newspaper, a a journalist, and they want to quote, and they don't want to use it because I'm not saying the thing that they want to hear, which is the extreme answer. Right, right. Which is why I love you. Yes. (laughs) You're smart. You're smart. Um, but it, it, but it puts people off because either they're like angry because it's not what they feel is the right yeah. answer. And I do think part of that is just, we really want to be validated in how we parent. And so if we're doing something, especially if it's hard, like breastfeeding, you know, you want to know that it was worth it to yes. put all that oh time and energy into it. Otherwise, what the hell have you been doing? It's so hard. Also oh. beautiful. I loved it. But I also like, I personally had a C-section. So I Me was too. like, I will be damned if I am not going to breastfeed for a year. Right. And it's going to be the most right. beautiful thing in the world because I'm not going to have two, you know, non, I just wanted one natural experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 
And I had a little barracuda on my hands the first time. It was so painful Mm. and I was so not ready to understand that my anguish and tears were not something to push through to such an extreme extent. And I, it was horrible and I did it. And I felt this, you know, like constant need to remind myself how important it was. So anytime a piece of science came out that said it was great, but not really going to make that big of a difference at a certain point, I was so irritated because I felt like secretly I was not, yeah, I was already in the beginning of this work. So I was certainly not exposing that to anybody because I wanted everybody to feel like it didn't matter what they did. They needed to love themselves and honor themselves and their baby in whatever the best way to nourish them could be. And of course, right. rest is best, but everything is blah, blah, blah. Like I definitely said those things, but inside I was like, except I have to do this perfectly. Totally, totally. And and then I I saw, and, I, and it was through watching the way other people moms mostly treated each other about that particular subject, the nur- you know, nourishing your baby. And that I watched the shame and the guilt and the aggressiveness on both sides. And I, I needed to, I almost needed to see that to catch myself desperately clinging to evidence that what I was doing was worth it. Yeah. And it was just a lesson that I, and I also, you know, at the same time was was doing the same thing every parent is doing, like trying to navigate in-laws or other people or judgment sure, or whatever. Sure. And realizing anytime you feel that whatever you're doing is the thing to be doing, the person who's not doing it is going to go on the defensive because what else can you do? Exactly. Because we're stuck in some kind of a rigid concept. And, and you know, what Mary Ainsworth said, found in Uganda about breastfeeding is, and this speaks to this whole issue, Um, So when she was looking at the mothers that she found to be the most secure in Uganda, and she was seeking variables, like what would make these mothers this way? One of the few variables that she discovered was not whether or not the mothers breastfed, most of them did, was whether or not the mothers enjoyed it. And so- First of all, the fact that Mary Ainsworth would think to ask these women in Uganda how they feel about breastfeeding. I mean, imagine. She was so forward thinking. It's bananas. Well, because she was so human. She was so interested in this from a human perspective. And so she found that the, the women who enjoyed breastfeeding actually had more secure attachments with their babies. And my hypothesis about that has nothing to do with breastfeeding. It has to do with the fact that they could feel. Of course, of course. I mean, they had feelings and, and they weren't shutting them down. So whether or not, so for you, even though you were miserable about it, it sounds like at least you were letting it in. You know, at least you were feeling what you were feeling. I was definitely feeling what I was feeling, but it wasn't until I enjoyed it mm-hmm. that I really feel like I enjoyed being a mother. The way, the being the mother of my infant, the way I wanted to, or the way I thought I was supposed to. Right. I definitely had like a, a chunk of time where I was like, I'm supposed to be extra good at this. Right. I hate doing this. Yeah. And when I hear my baby cry, even though I love her 
more than anything in the world. And all of those things were coming into play when I heard the sound of her waking up, knowing that she was going to bite me again. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I, my body was, it's just interesting what happens to your body because you're like pulling Brace. the baby into Brace. while also like, yeah, exactly. Nobody can see what I'm doing, but I'm bracing myself for right. pain. Right. So it makes sense. And of course with other people, and now I mean, I have a teenager, I have two, a between and a teenager and many years have gone by. And the second one was like, not, she just was easier in that area. But um, you look back and you go, oh, those things you cling to mm-hmm. as being so meaningful yeah. are, are about whatever you're going through in that moment and exactly. not about how your baby is going to grow into a uh, exactly secure, happy, or sometimes right. happy, sometimes just able to manage whatever experience they're having human being. And so it's just important to always recognize that. And so hard when other people are coming at you with such strong and passionate opinions. Right. But what's really, I think, fundamental in what you're saying is that, you know, it's about whatever you're going through and that's totally a legitimate area of interest, (laughs) you know, as a mother, what you are going through really matters and not just for your baby but for yourself, because guess what? You're still a person. And in fact, the ways, you know, the, the depth with which we as mothers can be connected to our feelings, our rage, our love, our delight, our resentment, our guilt, our shame, you know, all the feelings, the depth with which we can um, connect and actually feel all those aspects of our humanity is the depth with which we can love our children. Mm there's no other way. You know, I, I just, I'm going to about to publish a blog post tomorrow called um, something like why being your worst self, something like be your worst self, your kids will thank you. You know, like this, this thing of like how we're supposed to be constantly like scrambling to be our best selves. It's not working because we're scrambling. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. We're scrambling. And, and is, let yourself is... be, be miserable you know, feel it. Don't, you don't have to act it out all the time, but we try to, we, you know, it's that avoidant baby in all of us who just want to sit there and not feel what we're feeling. And as adults, that does not work. And as the mothers of teenagers, that does not work for them. No, no. We cannot, we cannot guide them to, to avoid those feelings. And we're, we're living in a time when there are really, really big feelings happening. And, and the only hope they have, which I think is great hope and really wonderful, is that they need to know that at a minimum, they've got us to say, go ahead and feel those feelings. They make yeah. so much sense. Yeah. And I feel them. You know, that's what that co-regulation is. Yes. When you're an infant, the, the baby who's crying because their, their diaper is wet, they can't tolerate that level of feeling. That's where the attuned parent comes in with a, a mobile face, you know, with affect saying, oh, I feel you. Yeah. The, the, the goal of the, be, of the attachment system is to feel safe, but also to feel felt. We must feel felt. And if we're not, we're going to keep searching for it until we can get there. And that's where we get into all kinds of trouble. So with our teenagers, yes, we can say you have permission to feel it, but we can also feel it with them. 
Mm-hmm. And we're not going to be able to do to... that if we can't feel our own stuff, you know? Exactly. And we, we, we can take that on without falling apart if we've allowed ourselves to experience feelings. And then That's exactly right. It's not like, uh oh, if I open this at all, there's going to be a rush that I can't, I haven't let this out. So it's just going to become too overwhelming. Got to put it back. Exactly. I, I listened to a podcast you did, I think it was with, with Jennifer Garner about the, um, the anxiety that comes from social situations. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's a real edge for me. Cause I was totally bullied when in middle school and, you know, mm-hmm. it was really, that was, that was an I'm edge sorry. for me. So thank you. But so Azalea is not being bullied and nor is she a bully. This is not an issue in her life. However, mm-hmm boy, do I get activated when there's social stuff way beyond anything that, you know, she requires. <laughs> um, right. So it's, you know, I need to tolerate my own discomfort with my own history so that I can be more available to her. Yeah. You know, her, her issues are not my issues. I'm just going to move so I can plug in. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, that space, which you get a lot of practice of because of your practice, but you taking a, a moment to figure out how you're feeling about what your kid is feeling so that you can then be there for them instead of being there to put your, you know, to deal with your own feelings. It's like the bullying exactly. is a perfect example. I mean, we do so many things when our kids tell us something, if they're doing okay, they're doing okay. Right. It doesn't mean the same thing for them. That's right. just the way it is. I it's know. just something to accept. Like they just have a different thing. Yeah. Our kids are not us. And yet we are inextricably connected through these attachment systems and, um, you know, through our feelings. We are, you know, John Boldy called it a social releasing system. The way when one bird chirps, the other one calls. When one person smiles, the other person smiles. These are social aspects of behavior. And, you know, when, when Azalea cried and my breast would fill with milk, Mm-hmm. This is biological, it's physiological, it's whole body. And attachment is like that. When our child is under duress, we react. And it's our reactivity that's the problem. Right. Not their big feelings. But of course, their big feelings get bigger when we're so freaked out by our own sensations that we can't like, you know, breathe through it and then be there for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking from very personal experience here. I want to be the parent that my kids come to without worrying about me. I I know. Oh, it's hard though. Like I remember going to my mother who I love and I am so close with and she will definitely be listening to this because she's so, (laughs) hi mom. Um, But I told her about a breakup with my boyfriend in not even high school, like junior high. And she welled up with tears because she was so sad for me and she loved this guy, (laughs) this kid. And she knew how much I loved him and how much pain I was going through. And I get it because watching our kids suffer heartbreak, which I haven't, my kids haven't gotten there yet, but like, I know, I know that that's going to be painful because that stuff is painful. Yeah. I, I have such a vivid memory of my mother on multiple occasions experiencing the pain herself and feeling like, can I just have this? 
Can I have the pain and you sit there and just be there for me? Is that, is that going to be okay? Right. And, you know, that was hard for her because she was so attuned and sensitive. Yeah. It was was so hard for her to like, say like, okay, because she's not a robot, but it was something that I never forgot. And so I always, I feel like I've been gearing up (laughs) for the moments where you know, my kids want to share something with me and I don't want them to like roll their eyes and go, you know what? I'm not going to tell you because you can't handle this. Right, right, right. I'm definitely on your mom's side. I'm so (laughs) emotional and I'm so, you know, I I get way over-involved. And I think it's because my mother was not that way. And she's probably listening to this too and cringing. You know, this, this has been a very difficult experience for her. I'm sure. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of a securely attached adult is the ability to live in mixed feelings and to have mixed feelings. And my mom has always been able to have mixed feelings and now they're extra. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. She's like rubbing her nose in her mixed feelings and mm-hmm. she's had to really manage that in a very public way with, you know, friends, family, you know, reviews, et cetera, calling her out in this way. And at the same time, she's also the hero of the story because she is the one who shows up in a way that is really unexpected and beautiful. But you have to be a nuanced reader to get there, you know, and so not everybody does. And so she's got some level of embarrassment. You know, she feels Mm -hmm. like she doesn't want to be seen as a cold and distant mother. And it's hard to be seen through the eyes of someone else when your impression of yourself is so vastly different. Exactly. Well, I've, <laughs> I've often told my children when they tell me what I'm like, I'm like, I'm not like that. Meanwhile, that's not what matters. How I perceive right. how I am with them is not what but matters. Exactly. And so that's what my mom and I have been talking a lot about. You know, mm. what matters is... Um, you know, it is about my story and everybody's story, but there are also some things that are true that she hasn't really wanted to look at. And that's life, you know? Of course. I want to make sure, because I think this happens so much more often than psychologists and mental health professionals and just generally people realize, is that when we say sensitive caregiver, that doesn't mean no boundaries. Goodness, and, that, no. and that there has to be um, an understanding of, of what that means so that, okay. you, and, and that it means something different for, for you than it does for me, that it is very much related to your version of sensitive, to your That's experience point, and interaction. In yeah. So if we don't explain that, then it does go back to the checklist right. of, are you showing delight in your face. I I mean, you learned this when you were coding. Yeah. It's weird to code human interaction. Really super weird. You know, it's fascinating, but it's weird because you're putting them into categories and giving numbers about levels of particular interactions and, you know, how many moments was there delight or check, 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 check. And then you count no, them I up know, and I know, I know. different things. And it's kind of yeah. insane. And you, you know, when you're doing research, you can get really stuck in it and forget this is crazy. Yeah. And no, I remember like, sometimes I would be with my babies and I would think if I were 
coding this interaction? <laughs> like, what would I give myself? And a lot of times I was intrusive. Like I was aware that I was intru- mm. like an intrusive Jewish mother who was like really not taking my kids' cues to this oh. day, by the way. Oh, that is me <laughs> completely <laughs> involved. So what does it mean to be a sensitive parent? That's a really, really good question. It does not mean caring about your child or not caring about your child. It doesn't mean having no boundaries. It doesn't mean giving them what they want. It's very specifically attuned to context. So the way Mary Ainsworth puts it is that a sensitive parent picks up a child when the child wants to be picked up, plays when they want to be played with, feeds when they're hungry. Um, as opposed to um, feeding a baby who actually, you know, if, if a baby's crying and you think, oh, the baby's hungry, but really they have a soiled diaper or they are wanting to play and instead you're trying to put them to bed. You know, so, so sensitivity is about being attuned to that child's signals in that moment. And that's where this thing gets really beautiful and really granular and deeply, deeply personal. Because there is no way you can use a checklist of behaviors. It is only reliant on the moment. So what I always tell people is I use the reading books example. So we all know reading books to children is a good thing to do, right? It's like on the checklist of things you have to do or breastfeeding or you know, any number of things. But when you mm-hmm. have a baby who is hungry and tired and you're trying to read a book to that baby, that is totally misattuned. Even though you have a great, goal, reading books isn't bad, but it's insensitive. It's not sensitive to that child's cues. This is a major source of confusion, but when we understand how this works, everything kind of changes because it's really about you and the child. And what does that child need? And then the way we become, and like I was saying earlier about attunement, the way we become sensitive to the child is we have to be able to be sensitive to our own internal sensitivity. I mean, I know that gets a little ridiculous, but how are we to know what that baby needs? We have to be able to read um, our own internal cues that are telling us what the baby needs. We are in our infancy as parents. Of course, we don't know all of this. Of course, we don't. It's cruel and asinine to imagine that we should and it's even more cruel and asinine to expect that anybody could. It's just right. ridiculous. So knowing that even if your intention is to be sensitive, you're getting to know your baby and you're in a relationship and, exactly. and it's going to depend on how many cues your baby gives you, how right. sensitive you are to other, you know, like you're, we all learn. My sister is not affectionate. She has never been affectionate. My mom always jokes she should have brushed her arm with a hairbrush when she was little, <laughs> like to do old school oh um, OT because yeah, she's yeah, just yeah. like so, she's just not warm and fuzzy. So she became affectionate and warm when she had babies, but only with her babies. Like she didn't become another person. Right. But she had to learn. It was a process of like- yeah getting to know what it's like to walk, you know, for the first time um, and be wobbly for a little bit. It was new for her. Being affectionate was new for her. We've taken this up because we have to work so hard to be seen and heard and successful. 
And we've swallowed this kind of knowledge-based reality. And, and so we're looking for all of these ways to know about mm-hmm. the unknowable. And, and, and attachment has really um, gotten swooped up into this desperate desire to be right and to know. Yeah. And in fact, the science is so much more beautiful and so much more whole and so much more feminine in the best sense than anybody ever gives it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that includes always pointing to John Bowlby instead of Mary Ainsworth. Yes. You know, I've asked so many experts if they've ever read Mary Ainsworth's Infancy in Uganda, and most people have not. It's a seminal work, you know, and there is detail. And that's what I think we're missing as parents, that it's about the details. And it's not about getting it right. It's about exploring, you know, what is, what's being asked of us here. Hi, this is Charles Duhigg from the podcast How To. And so far, the new school year is off to a kind of rocky start in the Duhigg household. Meet my two sons. Do you like sometimes do other things on your computer besides class? Minecraft. (laughs) You do Minecraft when you're supposed to be doing class? (laughs) This is a back-to-school season unlike any other. So we made a special three-part series named Cheat Sheet to provide the answers you need. So do your homework and look for How To with Charles Duhigg wherever you listen.